Um, for those of you that don't know, my name is Ryan. Uh, I'm the pastor here at City Beautiful Church. Is this anybody's first time? Okay, welcome. Thank you. Welcome. Um, I want a um, uh, special recognition back here. This is my friend Justin Johnson. He's the pastor at One Church Park District. They meet at the Museum of Art just down the road. Um, and Justin's actually going to be bringing the word here in just a few weeks, um, which is absolutely amazing. So um, we want to welcome him and, and just continue to, you know, just continue to experience what it is the Lord's doing in our city. You know, it's not, he's not doing something in a bubble. We're not, we're certainly not the exclusive access to the Spirit of God, if you know what I mean. And, and it's important that we have a pulse on what God is doing throughout our city so that we can celebrate that and we can participate in it. So I'm really excited uh, to have Josh with us in a few weeks. Um, we're currently in a series called Equip. So the Lord has given us this larger uh, vision for the year, loving community for bold exploration. And we've really slowed down and taken our time going through that learning. What does it look like for us uh, to be the beloved that God pursues, as God pursues us so we in turn pursue him? And then we began to look like from that platform of belovedness, what does it mean for us to be the loving community that God has called us to be? And finally, how do we launch out from that loving community into bold exploration? That part of the spiritual DNA that God has crafted for his family, his children, is that each of us are bold explorers. And so in this series, Equipped, we're really looking at what are the tools that God has given us in order to go out, to go into the uncharted territory. And we're about three weeks into it now, and already there's been um, so much excitement of us kind of honing in on what specifically the Spirit of God is as a gift for us. And so tonight, I want to continue that by talking about spiritual discipline. It's going to be kind of a two-parter. Today, I want to talk about um, a big-picture view of spiritual disciplines, and then next week, we're going to be talking about more of the practicality. And so uh, the working title for this is uh, Spiritual Disciplines or Why the Rock Didn't Become the Scorpion King by Accident. Most of you don't get that reference. Uh, go to IMDb later and look it up. It's terrific. Wow, that one died. The, this, thank you. Thank you. Uh, this morning, that one went over a lot better. Um, so I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray for you, and you pray for me, and we're going to get into this. Uh, so Heavenly Father, we testify to the truth that you're here and that you're with us. Uh, you're for us. You're not against us. And Lord, may we always come back to that remembrance time and again. That's the foundation that we want to build our relationship with you on. That's the foundation we want to build this idea of bold exploration on. That it doesn't matter where we go or where we're being called if we don't recognize first and foremost that you're with us and that you're for us. Um, it skews our understanding of what you're calling us to do. And so Lord, wherever each of us are at right now, um, we give your Holy Spirit permission uh, to meet us, uh, to remind us of that, to wake us up to the reality of your presence to us. Um, that as we dig in tonight, um, that we would all leave here rejoicing because we've met you face to face yet again and have been transformed by that encounter. So may the words of my lips and the meditation of all of our hearts be ever pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. And so this is kind of my, uh, my initial thesis for this part one on spiritual disciplines. God has equipped us with his Holy Spirit so we might be formed into little Christs. God has equipped us with his Holy Spirit. This is almost a continuation of what Logan was bringing us to last week with how the Holy Spirit manifests the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. But that God has equipped us with his Holy Spirit to transform us. And I, use, I love this phrase, little Christs. We were talking about it earlier this week in the teaching team. What does it mean to be little Christs? So if you, uh, if you know from the, the old, or from the New Testament, rather, um, the original followers of Jesus were known as this thing called the way. And for all intents and purposes, they were seen as this strange little sect of Judaism that formed in the city and kind of started to deviate from the norm. They had these very strange practices. They claimed the Messiah that Israel had been waiting for all of this time had already come. Something dr dramatic had happened. And they took upon themselves these strange acts and this strange language. And there was a strange way in which they loved one another that began to speak to this whole new path, this whole new way of pursuing. Pursuing God and being pursued by him. And later on in this story, we find that it's in the church in Corinth, 
over in Greece that they first start to be called Christians. And that word Christian literally means little Christs. So there was something, just a couple decades after the death and resurrection of Jesus, something in his followers, in his family, they said, they're like little Christs. And I phrase it this way because I think sometimes the the title Christian has been so uh, dumbed down that it's something that we're born into and we've inherited, and it doesn't really have to play out in anything. It's the same as uh, our ethnicity. It's the same as our nationality. It's something that you're born into, and maybe you take it seriously. Maybe you don't, but it's kind of interchangeable with any number of other titles. But when we begin to define little or Christian as little Christs, it begins to ask all of these questions about us, and I think it's the right questions for us to ask. What does it mean for me to be this little reflection of Jesus? That if I'm called to follow him, if I'm called to be patterned after him, how does that happen? What is the interplay between myself and God's Holy Spirit that forms me day by day to look more and more like he who I claim to follow? And so we're going to be looking today specifically at how God's Holy Spirit within us equips us and forms us through spiritual discipline. You know, I've met with many of you uh, talking about where you're at in life and, and, and even to some degree sharing in my own life. And what I have found so often in my life and in yours, whenever we are in some sort of a rut, whenever we feel like we're stuck, the first questions that I begin to ask are questions of spiritual discipline. What are the practices that you've put in place that help you to carry the story forward, especially when you're not feeling it, especially when you feel stuck or lost or numb or scared or distant? What are the practices, what are the rhythms that you've placed in your life that are gonna help you to continue to move the story forward? Because I guarantee you so often when we stagnate in our faith, when we stagnate in our relationship with God, it's not necessarily a question of passion, it's more of a question of discipline, which we'll get to in a moment. But kind of the, 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 the scripture that I want us to hone in on tonight is 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. And these are two letters that Paul has written to this young pastor of a church in Corinth. And I love how personal they are, and they're just full of such good advice for people that perhaps feel a little bit overwhelmed in their calling. And if you kind of partner it with the two letters of Corinthians, you find a church that's probably actually quite sizable for its day. And they have this, I don't know, tell me if this resonates. They have kind of a young pastor, and they're not really taking him that seriously because he's got a baby face. And they're just trying to make up Christianity on their own. So Paul has to write these letters to kind of say, no, 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 get back on course. And then he writes these letters to Timothy and says, don't let anybody talk down on you because you're young. Can I get a testimony? Somebody asked me yesterday, I was, I was uh, watching a, a television event with some people that I don't know, and um, someone asked me, hey, what do you do? I said, I'm a pastor. They go, how long? I said, four years. I'm like, oh, how old are you? I'm 33. I mean, I got as far as Jesus did. <laughs> you know, I've got like another couple of decades to go, so I think I'm doing all right. But I love that you can, you can in these letters, you can really feel um, Paul's fatherliness this young man, Timothy, um, that he loves this, this young man and he believes in him and he believes in uh, the quality of person that he is, but he's also been gifted and called into this very specific position. And so he says this in the first chapter, for this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. And what is that gift of God? It's God's Holy Spirit within us that we believe there's something that happens in the laying on of hands, we call this the apostolic succession. That when those in the previous generation come around, they lay hands on us, something happens where we now carry that mantle. Where the story of God, where the the, the tools that the Lord has given us in his word and his spirit are kind of passed on to the next generation through the laying on of hands. This is what Paul's talking about. He says, for the spirit of God For the spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. The spirit God gave us does not make us timid. What we might say in our day and age is the spirit that God gave us does not make us passive. I think passivity is a major issue in our modern era. I think passivity is a result of us not feeling like we're in control of our lives. 
We are more connected than ever before. We are more aware of what's going on half a world away than ever before. And there's this constant inundation of data and information and this thing's happening in some other country and you need to tune in at 10 o'clock tonight to find out if it might kill you. And we feel passive because we're not in control. Because there's so much information coming at us. We're oversaturated. We're overwhelmed. We're overstimulated. We're overcommitted. And what that does to us is it shuts down our ability to rightly assess our own lives. And we feel like we're just these innocent bystanders. We feel like we're victims just being hit with the world around us. One of the things that I've recognized in this, in this journey of personal discovery over the past year is that I have a very addictive personality. And even when I talk to my parents about it, they say there's, there's something in our, in our genealogical history uh, that carries that. And I recognize this passivity in my life is intimately tied in with that, with that attitude of addiction. You know, nobody chooses addiction. None of us choose to fall into these negative habits and patterns that we do. It's something when we're not aware, it's something when we feel like we're not in control that begins to build up in our lives and, and whatever it might be, whether it's heroin or watching Netflix, whatever it is, one day becomes two and two days becomes four and four days becomes a week and then a month and a year and before we realize it, we're so caught up in these bad habits, we're so caught up in sin, we're so caught up in whatever it is that ensnares us and it's nothing that we consciously chose. But it's because our original stance is that we're just passive witnesses to our own lives. And we're seeking ways to check out. We're seeking ways to cope. We're seeking ways to deal with a world that feels a little bit too much for us. And so Paul is saying here to Timothy, you've already got this spirit within you. And I think that's very key for us to hear today. He's not saying, hey, you need to stop being passive and you'll know when you stop being passive because then you'll start being active. He's saying, no. God has already given you this spirit. It's in you right now, and you need to recognize it. You need to call upon it. You need to make friends with it, become more aware of it. But the spirit that God has given you is not one of timidity and fear. It's not one of passivity. It's not one where you feel like you're out of control of your own life. No, this is a spirit of power and love. And I love how often Paul partners those two things together because we can have a very powerless love and we can have a very loveless power, right? Think about your past week. How many times have you participated in one or the other, right? A very loveless power where we have power over other people. In our attempt to try to make sense of the world around us, we control those that are closest to us. But we can have that very powerless love, which we call permissiveness, that we allow the brokenness of the world to continue in its due course, and we call it mercy. But, God, but Paul says, God has given you the spirit of power and love, that when those things partner together as fruit of the Spirit, we become the kind of bold explorer, explorers that God is calling us to be. And it's something in that, that marriage of power and love within us that enables us to go into the uncharted territory, that enables us to partner with God to go into the unknown. We've talked about this so much this year. We've talked about in Genesis 12 when God meets Abraham for the first time and he says, go to the land I'll show you. He doesn't describe it. He doesn't give him a 12-step course on how to get there. He says, number one, go, and number two, I'm going to show you, and that's all you get. And Abraham had to go on that. We looked at Israel for 40 years in the desert and said, God promising, I'm going to bring you to the promised land. They're like, okay, what does it look like? What do we expect? How do we, how do we get it? How do we maneuver it? What are the dimensions? And God says, I'm with you. And they say, yeah, okay, but seriously though, what does it look like? What can we expect? What's the plan? What's the program? And he says, no, seriously, I'm with you. Because until you understand that I'm with you, you'll never inherit the promised land. Until you understand that my, me being with you is the promise upon which all of the other promises hang, you'll never be ready for the promised land. We've even seen in the life of Moses, my favorite verse in the entire Old Testament, they're standing at the foot of Mount Sinai, Moses is getting ready to receive the Ten Commandments, and it says, and the people stood afar off, and Moses entered into the thick darkness where God was. That Moses had to trust in the character of God, 
that whatever was up there on top of the mountain, in the storm, in the cloud, was good. And I think for us as little Christs, for us as followers of Jesus, we have to realign where we put our confidence, that it's less about us understanding how it's all supposed to work. It's less about us having the plan that enables us to control our lives. And it's more about us having that kind of intimate trust with God that his spirit within us will lead us into the unknown territory, making us bold explorers. It's a spirit of power and love. And finally, he says, power and love and self-discipline. Self-discipline. This is really what we're going to be talking about tonight. What a beautiful oxymoron. It's a spirit-given self-discipline. Even Logan talking to us last week about the fruit of the Spirit, it's one of the fruit. How can self-discipline, self-control be a fruit of the Spirit? to, To us, it should be one way or the other. Either God is doing something within us, or we're trying to muster up enough moral fortitude to control our own lives. But I think Paul is very careful in the language he chooses, because he's saying, You have to trust in this because it doesn't necessarily make sense, but it's the spirit that empowers us to gain control of our lives. It's the spirit of God within us, residing within us, that we only need to incline our ears to hear his voice that empowers us to overcome timidity, to overcome passivity, to overcome fear, and begin to live the lives that God is calling us to. And so I think that really leads us into this conversation. What exactly are we talking about when we talk about spiritual disciplines? I think it's something that really needs to be rescued out of Christendom. It's something that we really need to re-explore because for many of us, spiritual disciplines have been reduced into a way to control other people, that we have to behave, we have to do it right in order to be um, part of the family, in order to be acceptable in the eyes of God. But perhaps tonight we can rescue this idea of, of spiritual discipline and put it into this, uh, this relationship that we have with the Spirit and examine how does it work out um, in our relationship with God from, from moment to moment in our lives. So as I was kind of wrestling with how, do, how would I define uh, spiritual discipline or self-control, this is kind of where I came. Discipline is choosing to position ourselves to the immediacy of God regardless of how we feel. So even in the first week of this series, Cole talked to us about choice, that God gives us choice. He gives us this power to choose in to what he has in store for us. And we each and every moment have this choice to position ourselves to the immediacy of God, to recognize that God is not somewhere else. God is not some other place and some other time, but that God is right here in this very moment that like Jacob, we would awake from a dream and say, surely God was in this place the whole time and I was not aware. I was the one that needed to wake up. I was the one that needed new eyes to be able to see that he's immediate, that he's right here with me. He's right in front of me. So I think it's spiritual discipline that enables us to choose to position ourselves to recognize the immediacy of God in this moment. And it's regardless of how we feel. Some of you really need to to hear this tonight. How you feel does not determine how close God is to you. How you feel does not determine God's attitudes towards you. But it can definitely determine whether or not you can choose to recognize his presence to you in the moment. When we allow our feelings to control us, when we allow our feelings to determine what we think is real and what we think is not, And there's this very interesting relationship then between passion and discipline. I think one of the things that I'm really excited that our generation has actually reclaimed in the fabric of the church is the place for passion. That we recognize that God has placed something deep within each of our bowels that just resonates when we see it. And we know this is the thing to which I've been called. This is the thing that God has equipped me to. And it's so different. I know so many of your stories in this room. I've sat and I've heard your passions. I know what it is that just makes you vibrate with the presence of God because you see it, you recognize it, and you step into it. And I'm so excited that we have reclaimed the place of passion 
in our pursuit of God and who he's calling us to be. But sometimes we allow passion to be the determining factor of our calling. So we move from this place of follow your passions, and then we begin to say about the things of God, well, I'm just not passionate about that. Well, God will, maybe God will give me passion for that thing. And let me tell you something. Passion will not last in whatever it is in your life. I promise you that. Here's what I've recognized. Passion will carry you for about five months. Have you ever known somebody, or maybe you yourself, you've moved somewhere else to have a whole you know, new perspective on life, maybe it's a new job, new relationship, whatever it is, and it's amazing, and you're so in it, and then all of a sudden you hit about five months, and the passion wears away. And what do you do? Denver, Colorado, here we go. Yeah, this place is awesome. We're going to do it again. And we move out to Denver, and we're excited, and there's mountains, and there's all this stuff, and then the passion fades, and all of our stuff catches right back up with us. And we try to continue to stir up passion within ourselves because we think that's the fuel that's going to give us sustainability in our lives. I think that's a lie. I think passion is beautiful when you put it in this bigger ecosystem that God has crafted for us of what it means to live a life by faith. So what does it look like for us to partner passion and discipline? Spiritual discipline, it corrects our cultural sense of entitlement and instant gratification. That we feel like we deserve all these things to happen to us. We deserve for God to make all of our dreams come true. We deserve for God to authenticate every passion that steers our sense of, of self. And that we have this need for in, like, immediacy, this instant gratification. God's got to do it right now while it's hot, while I'm passionate, while I'm in it. And if God doesn't do it now, well, maybe he doesn't actually love me very much. But I think this is the irony, is that it's God's mercy to not give us what we want right when we need it. It is God's mercy that he doesn't just do everything for us. Do you realize how often we become convenient Calvinists? That we put all the onus on God to do the thing. That he's in control so that I don't have to be responsible. So I'll just be the one that worries about passion, and then if God wants to change something in my life, if God wants to, to stir me up, to send me in a different direction, well, he's going to have to be the one to do it. And we put all the onus on God so that we can avoid responsibility in our lives. But when we're passionate and we're in it and we're doing the thing from day to day, then we just kind of glorify ourselves because we're the ones that are being obedient. We're the ones that are really making it happen. But I think it's God's mercy that he doesn't immediately give us everything we want. And then spiritual discipline kind of comes into this, this rich spiritual ecosystem. And it corrects that sense of entitlement that we have. It corrects this need for instant gratification. Discipline lifts us out of our tendency to navel gaze and only look at our lives and our hearts and our minds and see what we want and what we desire. And it lifts our chin so that we can see the bigger story not just of what God is doing in our lives personally, not just what he's doing in our community, not just what he's doing in our city, but what he's doing throughout the world, throughout time. Discipline lifts us out of our selfish tendencies to see the larger story. And so if we let them, passion and discipline can work together for our spiritual growth. There's a story I love about the 20th century rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel. Um, he was uh, a Jew living in Germany, escaped right before World War II, came here, um, taught several different places. He was a very pastoral writer, and there was a lot of, a, a lot of Christians have been very influenced by his work. And, um, and he was leading worship at this synagogue for a time, and, and these congregants would come to him, and they'd say, Rabbi Heschel, we're, the liturgy, it's just so boring. It's just so rote. It's the same prayers time and again. Why do we have to keep doing this? We need something that kind of ignites us a little bit more. And Rabbi Heschel said to his congregants, we'll stop doing the liturgy when you become the liturgy. We'll stop doing the discipline. We'll stop doing the practice when it is so become second nature that the reality of God radiates out from who you are. And I love that, to become the liturgy, to become the work, to become the disciplines. When I was starting the ministry school several years ago, 
in Nashville, we had a dear friend in our community who taught us how to pray about this relationship between passion and discipline in a way that honors both, that puts them in the right ecosystem for us to understand how they can work together. And it's to say, Lord, give me the passion to take up the things that you have called me to do. But where passion fails, give me the discipline to keep going. And I think what we begin to recognize is that passion stimulates us towards a life of discipline. And discipline gives us the proper framework to rekindle our passion. And one uh, speaks into the other. One gives life to the other and it keeps us moving down the road. So what is the purpose of discipline? Because I think for many of us in the church communities that we've come from in the past, spiritual discipline has been correlated with legalism. That spiritual discipline Spiritual control has been reduced to, to performing a list of duties and being judged according to what we find there. And I think it's key then that we understand that there's a purpose, a higher purpose to it than us just getting it right. And our goal in choosing into spirit-led, self-disciplined lives is to become more Christ-like. Our goal is to become more Christ-like. What is legalism? Legalism, legal, legalistic religion makes the rules themselves the end game. Legalism hands you a sheet and says, here's all the things that you're supposed to do and you need to check off the boxes each and every day to determine whether or not you're a good boy, whether or not you're a good girl. Legalism just, there's nothing more than the present day, the present moment. And it's very short-sighted and it ends up being very selfish and egotistical because it still makes it about us in this very strange way that legalism promotes shame and guilt because we can't measure up, we can't do it right. But unfortunately, the reaction to legalistic religion is for us to claim all of these things in the name of freedom, which is to say we cast off legalistic religion. We cast off all of these, these rote and tired and old practices that we're called to. And in the name of freedom, we're just going to open it up. Then anything goes. That we can do anything we want. And we participate in what Dietrich Bonhoeffer called cheap grace, which is to say, I can do anything I want and God will still love me, which is only technically true. And it's not actually grace. That's not actually grace. That's God's mercy yes, you can do anything you want, and God will still love you. But we step into this, this false idea of what freedom is, reacting against legalistic religion. And again, we put all the onus on God to work. Well, if he really wants to deliver me from this addiction, if he really wants me to change the patterns and rhythms in my life, then he's going to have to do it. And we quote unquote make ourselves available, but that's about all we'll do. Here's what I've recognized. This is how I define grace. Grace is the hand of God placed upon you to empower you to do the things that you cannot do by your own strength. And what grace does is it sees the telos. Telos is this Greek word in theology that means the end goal. Grace asks us this question, what would my life look like when God has finished what he started on the cross? What am I going to look like when God finishes the rescue project? Not just for me personally, but for the entire world. What is all of this going to look like when God gets what God wants? And now grace, instead of it being about what's right in front of me on the sheet of paper that the church has handed to me, now grace has a trajectory. Now grace has given me vision of what it looks like for me to be more and more Christ-like as the Spirit of God works within me and through me. And it gives me that goal, it gives me that vision, it gives me that direction in my life that properly places spiritual discipline in the ecosystem of faith journey. Paul talks about this in probably my favorite letter of his in Philippians, and he's, in chapter 3 he's kind of giving his story of how uh, God had rescued him uh, from this rather legalistic understanding of religion into one uh, that's really inundated with grace. And he says this, I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings. Now, there's another piece of it where we're just not passionate about that. The whole suffering thing, I'm just not really feeling that. I'm not passionate about suffering. I'm all about resurrection. I'm all about victory. But I don't know about this whole suffering thing. 
But you see, Paul has so much vision of what it's going to look like when God finishes what he started. He says, I want to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his suffering because Paul understands it's through suffering that we are formed. That it was through suffering that Christ was formed to become the Messiah. And in turn, you and I, through the suffering of this world, we become more like the Messiah as well. And he goes on, he says, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. So that when we choose to pattern our lives like Christ, then somehow, instead Paul's saying, like, I don't need to know the mechanics, I don't need to know exactly how it happens, I just know that it's happening. Somehow, I'm going to have that same destiny of resurrection from the dead. That is, Christ is the first fruit. That Christ resurrected into his new body and is able to sit at the right hand of the Father. So whatever God is doing in me right now through his spirit, he's preparing me for that very same thing, that I too can be resurrected, that I too can be given new life, that I too can be found worthy to stand in the throne in the presence of God. And I love this, because I think this is Paul's very powerful humility. He says, not only, uh, not that I have already obtained all this, or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on, to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. He's playing this little word game because the phrase for take hold is like to, a, to attain or to achieve or to strive, but it also means to be grasped. So he's saying, I'm going to grasp, I'm going to attain that thing that Christ has grasped me for, that Christ has attained me for, that he's rescued me into. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. And the prize that we have won, the prize that is our future destiny, is not to be zapped away from this planet and go and land on a cloud and be given these little angel wings and play harps for the rest of our lives. That's not the thing. That's not the thing, because you and I are stuck in this platonic idea that heaven and hell are like geolocations, that heaven and hell are these places that we go to, and then we just kind of look around, like Israel looking for the promised land, and we say, what does it look like? What can we expect? What are the dimensions? What am I going to have to wear? What am I going to have to do? But heaven and hell are the measurements of the immediacy of God to us. Heaven and hell are defined by the presence or lack thereof of God to us. And so the prize to which we have been called is full and complete union with God. There's nothing between us and him. There is no sin. There is no death. We are fully brought back together. That which was in the beginning has become the end, the alpha and the omega. And Paul knows this. This is the prize that Paul recognizes, is that it's full and complete union with the divine at the very end, that God is working out of me all of the things that would keep me from him, and he's rescuing me unto himself. And what we call that is Christ-likeness, that the byproduct of us being intimate with God, of having union with God, is that we look more and more like Jesus day by day as he works in us and through us. And so spiritual discipline does not ask, what do I need to do in order to get it right and to be a good person? But how can I conspire with the Spirit to be formed into the kind of person God has called me to be? Spiritual discipline feels confining to us when we think it's about following rules. Let me Bring it in a little bit more tightly. Spiritual discipline feels confining to us in the charismatic church because we feel like it's about following rules and we just want freedom, as if those two things are diametrically opposed. But spiritual discipline is freeing when we recognize it's actually about growth into our destiny. That God is not judging you moment to moment about whether or not you're getting it right but that God has a, a, a trajectory. God has a goal in what he's doing. And I think some of you need to hear this tonight. You need to relax on yourself. You need to offer yourself a little bit of patience. You need to offer yourself a little bit of grace. Sometimes we don't even need God to beat us up about not getting it right because we do the job for him as if that's what he really wants. 
But spiritual discipline is freeing when we recognize it's about God giving us these practical tools to become more and more like him, to become more and more like what we're called to be. And I think ultimately this, this idea that spiritual discipline is there because God wants me to be a good person is rather short-sighted. I hear this very often. Ultimately, God wants me to be happy and to be a good person. Which I just say, what, what is good? What's a good person? What's a not good person? Because I've read a decent amount of the Bible, uh, and I haven't found that bit in there yet. That that's the goal, that the purpose is for me to be a good person or a not good person. But I do read in the very beginning in Genesis chapter 3, there was this tree of life, which is found in intimacy and relationship with God. And then there was this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, where mankind gets to make up the rules about what's good and what's bad. I do see that. And I think it's short-sighted for us to think spiritual discipline is just about me being a good person. It's about me being, getting it right and being a good boy or being a good girl or whatever it might be. I was having dinner with a couple uh, from the church on Thursday evening. And one of them has been a uh, teacher for 30 years, and we were talking about what, what is this thing that we struggle with when it comes to who we're called to be as church? And what we recognize through our conversation is that everything in our culture says you are 100% defined by your performance. 100%. Our entire educational system is founded on you performing on tests, on making the grade to decide whether or not you're worthy to advance in life. Is it any wonder that we have third graders walking around with PTSD? Because their entire identity is determined by a scantron seat. And it doesn't stop there. It goes into our work lives. That we feel like we're, our value is tied in with how well we can perform. And then it inundates our families. And we feel like we have to clean ourselves up before we're presentable to our families. How many of you had uh, an emotional moment or a failure and you were told to go away into another room, into a closet, get it sorted out before you can come and rejoin the rest of humanity? Everything in our world is a performance-based understanding of identity and value. Everything. And is it any wonder then that when we come to God, we assume that's how God values us just times a thousand it's an even bigger test. There's even more bubbles to fill out. How many of you just want to give up some days and just bubble in C and just hand the test back in and say, I'm done? This is because we have such a misaligned understanding of, of God's heart and intention for us and what spiritual growth really looks like. But God's desire is not for us to get it right. It's not for us to be good boys and good girls. It's about intimacy. It's about us having relationship with him. It's about us not only hearing what our identity is as sons and daughters, but it's us learning how to abide in that, how to like allow that internal reality to radiate out from us. And it's about purpose. It's about the things that God has called us to do with our lives in bringing about his kingdom. And what I love about spiritual discipline is that it honors the reality that transformation happens slowly over a lifetime. God works very slowly. And again, this is his mercy. This is his grace. Discipline honors that reality, that it takes time. It takes time for us to unlearn all of these things that we have about him, to unlearn all the things that we've, we've picked up about ourselves or how the world works, and to begin to reorient back to his truth. I think discipline then begins to move the character of God within us from first nature to second nature. What do I mean by this? First nature is a, is a conscious effort to step into new rhythms and patterns that are teaching me something, but I do have to work at it. As Paul says, I press on, I strain, I train. I'm going to make this a reality. But before long, what we practice in first nature becomes second nature. It becomes something we do without thinking. Do you have any of those OG Christians in your lives? They've been doing it for 20, 30, 40, even 50 years. And you look at how naturally the character of God radiates from everything they do. And you don't question whether or not it's good. You just bless it. And what some of us do is then we judge our lives, maybe at the beginning of the journey, and be like, I'm not measuring up. I'm not doing it right. 
But see, they've understood something about the heart of God for them that maybe we're still struggling with. But it's because it's years of discipline. It's years of being laser-focused on living the kind of life that God is calling them to live that's enabled the character of God to move from being first nature to being second nature. I think this is why we celebrate the saints, both the personal saints that we have in each of our lives and our spheres of influence, but also the historical saints. Because the saints are these second nature little Christs. These little stories, these little testimonies that show us this is what it can look like over time as God continues to work in and through his people to form them to become more like him. And of course, when we're talking about discipline, what we're ultimately talking about is obedience. Spirit-led discipline is the difference between fans of Jesus and followers of Jesus. Do you know which you are? There's a lot of people out there today that are major admirers of Jesus. They really like him. They might even be inspired by the things that he says. They might be inspired by, you know, the way he loves. But there's a difference between just being a fan of Jesus, an admirer of him, somebody who occasionally tips their hat in his general direction, and someone who's actually a follower of Jesus. And I think it's determined by discipline leading us towards obedience. One of the best book titles of a book that I have not yet read <laughs> It's maybe on my shelf somewhere, I don't know, is uh, a, long uh, a long obedience in the same direction. Um, who wrote that? Eugene Peterson. Eugene Peterson. I guarantee you're going to read that book and it's going to blow your mind, probably. I don't know. But one of the things that Logan talked about last week with this, this uh, spiritual fruit conversation is that the, Paul uses this language of being in step with the Spirit. It's this almost military language that the Spirit of God uh, moves forward like the general, and we follow in line, and we, where his feet step, we step too. That we've learned this obedience, we've learned to sync up with the Holy Spirit and allow him to guide us wherever he wants to guide us. And that's what I think obedience really is. Again, it's not about doing the right thing, doing the wrong thing. It's about being in step with the Holy Spirit. It's about inclining our ear to the immediacy of God within us right here, right now. I'm going to share with you one of the saints, the historical saints that's been such an inspiration to me. This is St. Benedict of Nursia. He was born in 480 AD and he died in 547 he was born in a small town in Italy, and, and when he came to an affluent family, and when he became of age, he moved to Rome to continue his studies. And when he was about 20 years old, he became so sick of the culture around him, seeing this kind of depravity and this, this disconnection from the reality of God, that he decided that he was going to go off and do it himself. And so he moved out into the country. He encountered uh, this, this wandering monk who kind of gave him some tips, and then he decided that he was going to live in a cave for three years. So if anybody here, you're struggling with spiritual discipline, um, this is a great place to start. Go live in a cave for three years. See what happens. After a period of time, uh, the local abbot in the local monastery dies, and so the villagers all come to Benedict because a word of him had spread all throughout the land of how pious and, and disciplined this guy was. And they said, we want you to lead this monastery. And he didn't really want to do it, but he said, okay. And so he, he decided that he would step in and become the abbot of this monastery. And shortly after he got there, um, the reformation that he brought around was so radical that the monks tried to poison him. So they poisoned his bread, they put it in front of him, just as he was ready to eat it, this raven swoops in and grabs the bed and flies off. You can't make this stuff up. And then later, there's this other traveling monk in the neighborhood who decides he also wants to poison Benedict, and so he tries to poison his water, and then there's some other miracle, and he doesn't drink the water, and it's awesome, he continues to live. Um, but th what Benedict did is he started off this revival of, of true, genuine piety and discipline and eventually he became what is known as the father of Western monasticism. And that so many uh, monastic communities have modeled themselves after what is called the rule of St. Benedict, which is these, these rules that he would put in place for his monastic brothers and then eventually the sisters that would join them in how to craft a life that's honoring to God, that's disciplined so that you can be formed over time. And I actually carry around my neck the, the medal of St. Benedict um, that has such popular prayers on it as Vade Retro Satana, which in Latin means get behind me, Satan. 
That's a really good prayer to memorize. Another good one is this one. Crux sacra sit michi dux, non draco sit michi lux. May the cross be my light. May the dragon never be my overlord. I think this is why I have never been possessed by a demon to this day. This is already also a really great party trick. If you ever want to freak some people out, go to a party, memorize that prayer in Latin, and just kind of whisper it over their ear <laughs> while they're not paying attention. It's for their betterment, you know? You're saving them from Satan. But this rule of St. Benedict, the rules that he established, were able to form these communities of people who were willing to live apart from the surrounding culture that were willing to look strange in the way that they formed their lives because they knew they had a trajectory, that they had a goal. And it sparked revival in the Middle Ages. And it even plays out today. You know, with our, with our partnership with uh, the Central Care Mission, this drug and alcohol rehab facility here in town, the brothers there formed their lives around the rule of St. Benedict. You know, 1,500 years later, it's still playing out. And to sit with these guys, to hear their stories of, of being in this little monastic community as they're dealing with their addictions, as they're coming to terms with the fact that they have felt that they don't have any control over their lives, but that they've stepped into self-discipline that is spirit-led. They're seeing transformation. They're seeing themselves become more and more daily little Christs. And I think a lot of times when we talk about spiritual disciplines in the church, there's this sense of immediacy. Okay, now I've got to go and I've got to find the list and I've got to do the thing. And that's not what I want us to do tonight. I actually want us to take all of this week and just prepare our hearts for coming before the Lord and asking Him to guide us deeper into spiritual discipline. But I think we have to begin by asking ourselves honest questions before the Lord. How much do I want to change? Am I content with not having control in my life? Am I content with being passive and timid? And then how willing am I to follow Jesus? Not just to be an admirer of his, but to actually be in step with his Holy Spirit. I want to invite you to stand with me. When you came in, there was this little card on your chair, and this is a, a prayer that St. Benedict has gifted us with. And even 1,500 years later, this prayer carries so much power for us. And so what I want us to do is we're going to pray this prayer together. And then I'm going to pray for us, and we're going to step into a time of worship but I want you uh, to get with the person next to you and I want you to lay hands on them and I want you to pray as the Spirit leads that he would begin to open up our hearts and minds even just to examine those core questions, that we would become people who are hungry for discipline, that we celebrate discipline, that it becomes a joy to us because we recognize where it's taking us. And so we'll pray this prayer together. I'll pray uh, to lead us into worship and then we're gonna pray over one another. So let us pray. Almighty God, give me wisdom to perceive you, intelligence to understand you, diligence to seek you, patience to wait for you, eyes to behold you, a heart to meditate upon you, and life to proclaim you. Through the power of the Spirit of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Heavenly Father, we invite you to send your Holy Spirit to animate the spirit that is already within us, to begin to comfort us and challenge us, Lord, to speak to us about what our lives could look like when you finish what you started on the cross. Lord, we want to be people who know where we're going, but we need the vision for that. We can't craft it on our own. We can't determine who we think we're supposed to be. We need your guidance. We need your spirit. Give us each a new vision of what it looks like when the world has fully been put back to right, when we are fully in your presence, when we see you as you really are, and we see one another in the same way. The Holy Spirit, we give you permission to move right now in us and through us, create that safe space 
for us to not only receive your ministering, but to minister to one another. And we pray these things through the strong and the powerful name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ.